Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, please uh, help us to be attentive to your word tonight. Uh, we pray uh, that as this letter says, that uh, let the uh, let the churches hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, we know uh, that your Spirit uh, can take your word uh, even this day and, and bring it home to our hearts in ways that will really uh, change us, that we would really hear your word, not just have it kind of going in our eardrums, but in, in, hear it in such a way that uh, we trust it and delight in it and obey it. Uh, so please, Lord God, do this work in our hearts and minds today, I pray. Amen. Uh, I don't think there's uh, any doubt that uh, our, in our culture, in our society, uh, the whole issue of corruption in the church is a really big deal. Uh, this uh, recent survey, I've got it here kind of in uh, hard copy form. You can look it up online, the, the Faith and Belief Survey. Uh, but it found that the top two behaviours that uh, were most likely to prevent uh, someone who wasn't a Christian but was open to Christianity, right? So this demographic, someone who's not a Christian uh, but they're open to exploring Christianity, uh, the top two behaviours most likely to prevent them doing that uh, were abuse and hip- hypocrisy in the church. Top two. Abuse and hypocrisy in the church. Essentially, corruption. Because if you look up dictionary.com, uh, it says corruption, uh, corruption is dishonest or fraudulent conduct. It's behaviour uh, by those in power. Right? And we all know that the corrupt conduct in the church in our own country has caused massive damage. Oh, I'm really sorry if you're here today and it's caused you damage. Uh, But of course, corruption isn't just about behaviour. It's not just about conduct, what you do. But Because uh, another definition of corruption uh, is really more internal. It's the the process by which, uh, this is dictionary.com, right? The process by which something or someone is changed from its original state to one regarded as erroneous or debased. Well, you see there, the, the corruptions are not so much about conduct, uh, but about a particular state, a particular condition. And that's important because it's very possible for someone's conduct to look fine. Their behaviour look, looks pretty good. But their inward condition, their, their heart, is absolutely corrupt. And that's what's happening in this church in Thyatira. On the outside, they, they look pretty good. And much of their conduct is okay, but on the inside, their spiritual condition is corrupt. Before we get into the letter, as we've looked at each of these letters, I've pointed out that for the most part, uh, the letters follow pretty much the same structure. Uh, It's those five C's in your outline, uh, that there's a particular characteristic of Christ... Uh, It's usually taken straight out of John's vision of Christ back in the second half of chapter 1, if you want to uh, to read that later on. Uh, uh, Then uh, there's Christ's compliment, uh, his criticism and his command to each church. And every letter ends with his commitment to the church. Now, I'm pretty much rolling out that outline, variations of, in every week as we look at this. And you might think, gee, that's a bit boring. Kind of, can't the preacher be a bit more creative? Uh, And and I admit, it is easier for me. Uh, But I also... uh, want you to really get your head around how these letters are structured, because I think it'll actually help when you come back to them in the future. So let's explore these five cities, uh, these five C's. Actually, I've added a couple of extras today. Uh, First, let's look at the city of Thyatira, another C there. Uh, Thyatira, it's about uh, 65 kilometres southeast of Pergamum. That's the the city we looked at last week. Uh, It's the modern-day city, uh, a Turkish city uh, called Akasar. And really, it's a pretty insignificant city. 
very insignificant, and particularly to receive this, the longest of these seven letters. Like you'd think, like the biggest city would get the longest letter, but no, uh, this one. Thyatira. Uh, the first mention of Thyatira uh, in, in the Bible uh, is in Acts chapter 16. Uh, you can read it later on if you like, but Paul is in Philippi. He's, he's preaching the gospel, and we're told in verse 14 that, that one of the, the people listening to Paul was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive Paul's message, we're told. And so that's probably how the church in Thyatira started, right? Lydia, Lydia heard the gospel, she believed the gospel, and then she went back to Thyatira and she shared the gospel through her business networks, right? She, she's a cloth dealer. And it's not surprising that she's a cloth dealer because Thyatira was famous uh, for its textile industry. Uh, particularly, uh, they had access to some kind of uh, natural resources that meant they could dye cloth purple. So it's not surprising she's uh, a purple cloth dealer. In fact, Thyatira uh, was home to more trade guilds, whether that's similar to, to trade unions, uh, than any other city in the province of Asia. Uh, that, that'll be significant as, as we unpack this letter. Uh, so that's the, the city of Thyatira. Well, what about the characteristic of Christ right at the start of the letter? In verse 18... Uh, we see these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like, are like burnished bronze. Uh, it's interesting that this is the only time in the whole book of Revelation uh, that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, as far as I can tell. Or right, why here in, in this letter? Uh, well, let me read, you, read to you from uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, it says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets uh, at many times and in various ways. Uh, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, the son of God. Uh, so you see, all of us uh, reveal the deepest aspects of who we are by speaking to one another. That's how you get to know people. Uh, and God's no different. God's the same. Uh, and here we see that it's in Jesus Christ, his son, the Son of God, that the Word of God become flesh, that God has fully and finally spoken. There's nothing more to say. The Son of God is the full revelation of God. And that's very important for this church to remember, this church in Thyatira, because we'll see that they're being misled by Jezebel, right? a prophetess who claims to have these extra revelations from God, these more complete revelations. So Christ comes to this church and he reminds them that as the Son of God, it's him. He is the full revelation of God. God has nothing more to say. And as God, Christ's eyes are like blazing fire. Right? He knows and he sees everything. It's a picture of you know, the theological word. It's omniscience, all-knowing. He knows and sees everything, including what is really going on in this church and what's going on in our church. In fact, sometimes I wonder how Christ actually sees us as a church. How does he see you and, and your life? It's pretty confronting, right? Here he is, his blazing eyes that, that, that pierce through everything to the, to the depths of our hearts and minds we'll see later in the letter. I wonder how Christ sees you, how he sees us. 
Our blazing eyes, his feet, we're told, are like burnished bronze. Right? That's like brass that, that's been refined in fire. Right? The picture is that the Christ, he's, he's kind of armoured up. He, he's ready for battle. He's ready to judge his people, to correct them, to, to rebuke them, to, to purify his church. So it's really quite, quite a terrifying picture. Blazing eyes that, that see everything, that know everything, and burnished feet that are ready to judge, critique, rebuke. That, that's the, the characteristics of Christ. In verse 19, Christ gives his compliments to the church. They're doing some things well. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Oh, we're going to see that there's a whole lot going wrong in this church. They're literally allowing this woman, Jezebel, to get up on Sundays and say it's completely fine to worship idols, to eat food sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. That's what they're allowing in their church. In fact, I wonder what you would think if you heard of a church where that was happening. That's what the leadership of the church were allowing. I think you might think that perhaps it's not really a church anymore. Is it even Christian? I mean, you'll notice that the Christ, right, he's got his blazing eyes and he addresses this letter to his church, his assembly in Thyatira. This church, despite all their mess, is still Christ's people. And there's lots of good things in the church. First, Christ compliments them for their deeds. Like the church in Ephesus, you get the sense that in Thyatira that there aren't many passengers, not many pew sitters in the church. Right? Everyone's engaged, they're serving. It's a hard-working church. And Christ knows that. He sees that. He knows their deeds. Incidentally, he knows when you're hard at work here at Darabin Presbyterian. He notices that even when no one else seems to notice uh, there's a theologian named uh, Richard Foster in, in America, and he, he says this uh, about service. Uh, he says, Our sinful flesh whines uh, against service, uh, but it really screams against hidden service because we strain and pull for honour and recognition. Uh, sometimes I'm conscious that I myself and perhaps we as a church, uh, we could do a better job of honouring those who serve behind the scenes, encouraging them. You know, they don't get in the spotlight. Let, let's encourage them. Let's spur them on. But other times, I think we've got to find comfort in the fact that even when other people don't seem to notice our service, uh, Christ notices it. We've got to crave Christ's honour and recognition more than we crave the honour and recognition of others. And maybe you notice that the line of that, if in your heart you're going, nobody ever notices what I do, so I'm just not going to do anything anymore. When people start encouraging me, I'll start serving again. Well, let me, like, that might be a problem. I said, like, we, we might need to be a more encouraging church. But maybe it's an encouragement to you that, that Christ knows your deeds, just as he did this church in, in Thyatira. Uh, secondly, he compliments them for their love. Uh, that's, that's maybe a little bit surprising for this church. 
Right, but Christ, once again, he sees into the hearts of this church and he, and he says, oh, I see that you love God and one another and maybe even the, the community around you. This is a loving church. It's a warm church, a, a welcoming, a hospitable church. A third, Christ compliments them for their service. Right, really, uh, it's a particular slant on their service. Faith, service, perseverance, they're, they're, they're kind of all related. And the point is that, uh, that this is not a church uh, where people are, are kind of go really well, like, like sprint really hard for you know a, a month, and then they don't serve for ten months. And this is a church where they understand that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. They serve sacrificially but sustainably. They they plug away in serving Christ and His people for the long haul. There's endurance and, and perseverance in their service. In fact, uh, if you look at, at that last compliment, you'll see that, uh, that far from kind of burning out in their service, this is a church that is serving more now than they were at first. They're, they're going from strength to strength. Lots of activity in this church. Uh, so in many ways, if you, if you just read verse 19, you'd think, this is an outstanding church, isn't it? What a wonderful church. Uh, but underneath all of that, Christ can also see like, like a hidden cancer in this church. A, a disease that, that's corrupting the church on the inside. Have a look at verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. I was imagining during the week being the pastor of this church. You kind of uh, receive this letter from John. Uh, and then uh, you've got to get up uh, on Sunday and, and read it to your church. It must have been pretty shocking for him, for his church, that, that Christ's assessment of the church was very different to their own assessment. And he kind of saw through their church. Right? He saw that in many ways their love, their busyness, their sacrifice, was, it was just a sham, a cover-up for deep spiritual corruption. Uh, he puts his finger on the source of the corruption. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Uh, you might remember that the church in Ephesus, uh, that Christ criticized the church in Ephesus uh, because it was weak in love, like the loveless church, uh, but it was strong in judging false teachers. Did a good job of that. right? Thyatira is the opposite. They're, they're strong in love, but they're weak in, in judging false teachers like, like Jezebel. And so as a church, we've got to take that on board. We, we really have to avoid both those dangers. Right? We don't want to be a church that is kind of rigorously orthodox, but is cold and hard-hearted and unloving. Well, on the other hand, we don't want to be a church that, that's so loving and accepting and inclusive that, that will embrace anyone, will accept anyone, including destructive false teachers, you see. Uh, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we have to speak the truth in love. But, but both those things have to be together. Uh, so in Thyatira, the, this false teaching is coming from uh, this woman named Jezebel. Oh, I don't think that, that's her real name. Actually, it might be. Uh, but I think it's the name that, that Christ gives this woman because of her role in this church. Uh, you'll notice that, that Jezebel is a self-appointed prophet. She's kind of given herself that title. And let me say, that should give you alarm bells even today. But if you come across a leader who's kind of calling themselves a prophet of God, bringing fresh revelations from God, ding, 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 like just be careful there. That's Jezebel. 
And the result of her teaching is that she's misleading this church into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So Christ gives her the name Jezebel because in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a Sidonian princess who married Ahab, the king of Israel. Uh, you can flick through these chapters of First Kings later on if you like, or if you're a really kind of flick, a quick Bible flicker, uh, you can flick through some of these verses. But in, in First Kings chapter 16, uh, if you read that chapter, uh, you'll see that Jezebel misled King Ahab so that uh, he, she kind of convinced him to set up a temple in Israel uh, for the idol Baal, so the Israelites could go along and, and worship this idol. And then in chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, we see that Jezebel uh, is in the process of systematically killing off God's true prophets and introducing hundreds of false prophets into Israel. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 21, she organises for the murder of Naboth simply uh, because uh, her husband wanted his vineyard. And Ahab couldn't get it sorted, so Jezebel, like she's on the case, she gets it done, and they've got some nice wine, right? There's no poor Naboth, but there you go. Uh, and, uh, and in 1 Kings uh, 21, this is kind of the summary verse, verse 25, uh, we read, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So Christ calls this woman in Thyatira, Jezebel. She's introducing idolatry into this church, sexual immorality into this church. And of course, just as it was King Ahab's weak leadership that allowed Jezebel to mislead Israel, in this church, it's the weak leadership of the elders in Thyatira that allowed this woman to mislead this church. It seems that the leadership are taking the same tone as the church. The elders in the church are much too loving and inclusive and accepting, like it's a warm, hospitable, welcoming place. They're much too loving uh, to set any boundaries in terms of who teaches in the church. Pretty much anyone gets a gig. If you're there, you've got something to say, there you go. Especially if you're charismatic and beautiful, like Jezebel probably was. And so Jezebel gets an opportunity to teach in this church. And of course, it's even worse because she's not even teaching the Bible. Why would she teach the Bible? She's a prophetess, right? She's got these amazing new revelations from God, fresh revelations that that somehow trumped how God had revealed himself in Christ, how God had revealed himself in the word about Christ that this church had received from the apostles, you see. And this happens today. Uh, One big kind of global example, Uh, some of you maybe have seen the Book of Mormon uh, in Melbourne, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, Joseph Smith, the the, the founder of Mormonism, uh, he claimed uh, to have received fresh revelations from God. Gold tablets came down from heaven and funnily enough, as is often the case with these things, funnily enough he was the only one uh, who saw those tablets and who was able to translate and interpret the tablets. And out popped the Book of Mormon. Now, that's a bit simplistic, but you know, like the Book of Mormon, which incidentally has the subtitle of Another Testament to Jesus Christ. Alarm bells, right? Well, we've heard, we've read Hebrews chapter 1. There's no need for another testament. God has spoken fully and finally in his Son, and his word about his Son is in the Bible, in the, in the Scriptures. So Joseph Smith is like Jezebel, a false prophet who's misleading God's people. 
But actually, that, this kind of mindset of, of seeking new revelations, fresh revelations from God, that mindset uh, can trickle down into the life of, of just the average Christian. Uh, for example, I remember sitting in a Bible study with a first-year uni, uni student a number of years ago, and they said to me, look, Aaron, sure, uh, God, God can speak to us through the Bible, but then there's how God really speaks to us. It's how God really speaks to us, through, through, through the still, small voice of his spirit, you see. And if I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with my life, oh, I need a fresh revelation from God for every step of the way. Now, sure, God uh, does speak to us through the power of his spirit. He leads us, he guides us, uh, but primarily he speaks to us. He, he promises to speak to us through his spirit-inspired word. It's not that the spirit wasn't active in the Bible. He inspired it. You want to hear the Spirit speak? Read your Bible. It's very dangerous to, to keep chasing fresh revelations from God. This church in Thyatira learned that. This, uh, fresh, Jezebel's fresh revelations misled them into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And it's interesting, right, that in Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, the, the leaders of the early church, the apostles, they, they had a meeting and the two conclusion, or two of the four conclusions that they made were that Christian churches uh, should abstain from food polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. Acts 15 verse 20. Right, you see that this church is being misled by Jezebel's amazing new fresh revelations to completely ignore God's explicit commands. How is that happening? What's going on that's giving Jezebel traction? Well, it centers on those trade guilds. I mentioned them earlier. If you're a Christian in Thyatira, thriving trade industry, there was a fair chance you were a tradie. Right, a blacksmith maybe, a mason, a text, that's a stonemason, not a freemason, a textile worker, right? There was a fair chance of that. And so if you wanted to make a living from your trade, you had to join the guild. That's how it worked. The problem was that the trade guilds held all their social functions in the temples of pagan gods, the gods that were kind of associated with their trade, so maybe, maybe you're starting to see the issue here, right? For these Christians, if they didn't go to those functions, they risked economic suicide. They'd lose their trade, their business, their, their livelihood. Just like a teacher, perhaps. I think you have to be in the VIT, don't you, if you want a job teaching? Like, if, if, you, if you don't join the VIT, Victorian Institute of Teaching, you, you sacrifice, like, you can't have a career, that's what it was like for them. But if they did go along, uh, they were committing spiritual suicide. They had to worship the pagan god. They had to eat food sacrificed to the god. And they, as the night wore on, the alcohol flowed. Lots of pressure to engage in sexual immorality. Uh, sometimes in worship of the gods, sometimes just for kicks. That's how these functions worked. Uh, so these, Christ, uh, these Christians really wrestled with that uh, until Jezebel came along. Bless her soul. Sorry, I'm joking. But, you know, like she said, like what did she say? She said, don't worry about that. Though sure the apostles might have said that was wrong in the past, but you know what? Like we're, we're nearly entering the second century now. The church has to move with the times, you see. And it's surely God, you know, surely God wants you to be able to provide for your family. Like God's not unreasonable. And, and really, like how are you ever going to reach your workmates with the gospel if you don't go along to those functions? You, you better be there. 
So Jezebel, you see, she said exactly what this church wanted to hear. And so lots of them embraced her teaching. It completely corrupted the church. And so perhaps you'd think that Christ would have, would have kind of dealt with Jezebel straight away. But have a look at verse 21. Have a look at how, how gracious Christ is. He says, I've given her, Jezebel, time to repent of her immorality. I think that's very gracious. Right? Christ gives Jezebel, someone who's destroying one of his churches, time to repent. He gives you time to repent. Maybe he's been giving you time to repent. Maybe you've got to repent for the first time. You've got to turn away from your life of, of wanting things your own way. You've got to become a Christian. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're a Christian who's been unwilling to repent of a particular sin. Christ's been giving you time to repent of that. He's been gracious. And tonight he's putting his finger on that sin. He's saying, don't be so proud. Confess that sin. Embrace my grace. But Jezebel, she, she wasn't willing to repent. So look in verses 22 and 23, Christ condemns her. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, he says, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely uh, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Uh, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. I notice the I wills in this passage. Right? Christ says four times, you haven't dealt with this woman as you should have. So now I will. I will, I will, I will, he says. So just as Jezebel kind of cast this church onto, onto a bed of so-called pleasure, right? adultery, sexual immorality, that's where she cast the church, Christ says, I'm going to cast Jezebel and all her followers onto a bed of suffering. In fact, he says, if Jezebel's, Jezebel's followers don't repent, he'll strike them dead. Full on. But the point is that as it stands, these followers of Jezebel, even if they profess to be Christians, are showing themselves really to, to, to be non-Christians, to, to be people who, who are separated from God, the, the source of all life, by their own choice. And so Christ says if they don't repent, they'll meet the same destiny as non-Christians, physical and spiritual death. And Christ will do all that because he wants all the churches to know that they can't, that they can't hide anything from him. You can't pull the wool over Christ's eyes. He's got blazing eyes that see through, see through the very depths of our hearts and minds. And one day, he'll judge all of us according to our deeds. Now, that's not saying that Christ accepts us because of what we've done. That's, that's religion. Right? That's works-based acceptance. Right? But it's, saying that, that, uh, it's saying that what we do is a clear sign of whether we've genuinely accepted what Christ has done. You see, It's the fruit of our relationship with him. So if there's no fruit, or if the fruit's really dodgy, that's what, yeah, it's not good. So here we've got this church, right? Uh, just think, we're, we're four and a half years into our church plant. Uh, this church is about 30 years after it's been planted. And in verse 24, we see that, that many of the people in this church have been misled by Jezebel uh, into Satan's uh, 
deep secrets. But you can picture Jezebel probably told this church that, that she had this amazing insight into God's deep secrets. Right? Oh, I'll tell you things that, that you wouldn't have ever known if it wasn't for me, you see. But Christ tells it like it is. Jezebel is whispering the lies of Satan, not speaking the truth of God. See, the heart of Jezebel's teaching was uh, that even if these Christians engaged in some sort of corrupt conduct, right? if they ate food sacrificed to idols, if they had sex with an idol prostitute, if they bowed down to worship an idol, it wouldn't corrupt them spiritually. Right? Because this is the seeds of, of what became known as Gnosticism. Right, essentially, what you did with your body uh, won't affect you spiritually. You can do what you like. You can behave in a way, conduct yourself in a way that have no impact on you spiritually. And, of course, the truth was that these Christians only did those things. They only conducted themselves in that way uh, because their hearts were already corrupt. Their corrupt conduct came from their corrupt hearts. They loved uh, not just the wrong things, uh, but the right things in the wrong ways. If I can explain. For example, it's clear that, that this, the people in this church, by and large, uh, love things like money and comfort and status and security and approval, the things that they could get by going along to the trade guild, you see. They love those things much more than they loved Christ. How do we know that? Because when Jezebel gave them the opportunity to get those things, they snapped it up, even though it meant being unfaithful to Christ. And we're no different. I think we try to separate our conduct from the condition of our hearts. We try to rationalise, we convince ourselves that that we can go to that place, uh, watch that show perhaps, read a book, take that job, network with those people. I I can pursue this relationship, I can do all that and it'll never affect me spiritually. But often it does affect us. But not because all those things I listed are inherently bad, but because so often we do those things to feed the corrupt loves in our hearts. We love approval, so we can't say no to this. So we want more comfort. We don't really rate the comfort we get from Christ, so we need comfort from this way. We don't really think that Christ is good and satisfying, so we say yes to this. And we say yes to things that we shouldn't and we convince ourselves that it won't affect us spiritually. Uh, But as James K.A. Smith says, he wrote a book called uh, You Are What You Love. He says, uh, just as there's a connection between what you eat and what you become uh, physically, so also there's a connection between what you love and what you become spiritually. So I guess the point is that You can't go through life loving exactly the same things as the world around you and not become like the world. If you love approval and comfort and security uh, more than you love the approval uh, from work, more than you love the approval and comfort and security that you get from Christ, in the end you'll become like everyone else who loves those things. You become, you are what you love. If the condition of your heart is corrupt, if there's these distorted loves, uh, sooner or later the the conduct in your life will be corrupt. Disordered living. That's what happened in Thyatira. That's what happens in our lives. 
Uh, having said that, in verse 24, uh, Christ is still committed to this church. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you uh, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, excuse me, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So Christ doesn't want to burden these Christians uh, other than asking them to hold on to, to the burden that they already have in a sense. Well, what is that burden? It's the, the passage I referenced earlier. Right in Acts 15, the apostle said, verse 28, uh, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you. Well, we don't want to burden you, the apostle said. With anything beyond the following requirements, you, sh- uh, you are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from uh, the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So what's Christ doing? He's simply saying, go back to the word from the apostles that you already have. Go back to the Bible. Reject Jezebel. And go back to the Bible. Uh, so in verses 26 to 29, Christ unpacks uh, the reward these Christians will receive if they're faithful to him. He says, uh, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Uh, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a pretty amazing promise. I don't know about you. I don't often think about this as, as one of the promises of being a Christian. Uh, but here it is that one day when Christ returns in all his glory, faithful Christians will reign with him. They'll rule with him. That's why there's this quote from Psalm 2, right? That the victorious ones will rule with Christ with an iron scepter. They'll, they'll dash, them to pieces, dash their enemies to pieces like pottery. That's a psalm about Christ, the messianic king. And Jesus is saying these Christians, the faithful ones, will reign with him in glory. That's the same with the morning star image there, right? In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, right, the glorious king, I, Jesus, am the bright morning star. It's a picture of his rule, his glory. So really, this church in Thyatira is being presented uh, with two main options. Uh, that they can be faithful to Christ now, uh, and that will lead to, to plenty of hardship, but they will reign with Christ forever. Or they can be unfaithful to Christ now, and they'll probably have an easier life, get along well with the people in the trade guild, uh, but they'll be judged by Christ, dashed to pieces like, like, like a jar of clay. So it seems pretty important that as Christians uh, we, we know how to deal with this corruption in our hearts so we can be faithful to Christ. I'm not talking about the initial moment when you become a Christian. I'm talking more about the ongoing process. How do we deal with these corrupt loves in our hearts that might drag us away from Christ? Uh, have a listen to these words from uh, a Scottish uh, preacher, uh, Robert Murray McShane. Can't come to a Presbyterian church and not have a a quote from a Scottish preacher, right? Uh, He says this, uh, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You hear that? Our hearts are corrupt. So what do we do? He says, For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled uh, with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and, and excellency of Christ. 
Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there is no room for sin. You see, if, if you want to deal with, with uh, the, the corruption in your heart, you recognize that there's this disordered loves there, right? If you want to deal with that, uh, you should not spend all your time dwelling on how corrupt you are. Oh, woe is me. I've got to kind of wallow in my sin. You've got to look there sometimes, right? McShane says you've got to take at least one look at there. But for every one look at your sin, you've got to take ten looks at Christ. Ten looks at his beauty, his glory, his amazing love. His amazing love for people like us. People who really, spiritually speaking, are just as corrupt as the unfaithful in Thyatira. Like maybe uh, we're not following a Jezebel, but we're corrupt. What do we deserve? Look at verse 27 in the letter. We deserve to be dashed to pieces by Christ. Like jars of clay. And what does the cross show us? Christ's amazing love. Christ was willing to be dashed to pieces for us on the cross. I think if you get in the habit of taking ten looks at Christ and his death at the cross for every one look at your sin, over time there will be less and less room in your heart for those corrupt loves. Because as McShane says, every chamber of your heart will kind of be overwhelmed with love for Christ. There's no room for sin when that's happening. I'm not saying you'd be perfect. I'm saying over time this happens. You won't be as driven to get the approval of others if you deeply know the approval you have in Christ. You won't be as driven to give power if you know that one day you'll rule with Christ forever. Who cares about power in this world? If you rule with Christ forever. You won't be as, drilling, as driven to, to hold on to money, to have security in this world. You've got eternal security. You see how this works. If your heart's full of what you have in Christ, you'll be less driven to these corrupt loves. That, that's how you deal with corruption. Let, let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this letter to the church in Thyatira. Uh, we do pray uh, that we would be mindful of listening to sound teaching uh, that enables us and urges us to stay faithful to you. Uh, we pray that uh, you would help us to take uh, those uh, looks at our sin and, and, the, and admit the corruption of our hearts, uh, but then to, to fix our eyes on, on our Lord Jesus Christ and to see his amazing love for people like us that though we deserve to be dashed to pieces, he was willing to be dashed to pieces for us uh, that, that we might know him and, and have life both now and forever, have our hearts cleansed. And so we pray, Father, that you do this deep work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.